when I ask you to take your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And a message simply called Raising Giving to a Grace Work. Raising Giving to a Grace Work. There are two words I want you to think about today. One word is altitude. Altitude. Altitude means up this way, okay? Altitude. The other word is grace. Grace is all that Christ has done for us. All that Christ has done for us is what grace is all about. And we're going to raise giving from the altitude it normally receives in our lives somewhere down here. We're going to seek by God's grace to raise it where it needs to be. Because if we raise God's grace to where it needs to be in our lives, suddenly our attitudes about giving will change. And that's what I'm after today. I'm after a change in your attitude about giving. If we get that done, then the rest of this thing's going to be simple. Right, Stephen? If we get that done, the rest of this campaign's going to be simple. So we want to work on your attitudes. We want to work on all of our attitudes today. It's a famous illustration from preachers who preach on giving. It's a story of an early pilot who was crossing the Atlantic in his single-engine airplane when all of a sudden he heard some chewing and gnawing which he knew was coming from under his instrument panel, and he knew there was a rat, had to be something, a rodent, chewing on the insulation of the wires of his instrument panel. He knew that if he didn't do something about it, he would soon lose control of the plane. began to think about what he could do. He couldn't go back. It was too far. He couldn't really move around in the plane to do anything, so that wasn't an option. But suddenly he realized exactly what he needed to be doing. He took his oxygen mask and put it on and then started climbing higher and higher and higher until he reached an atmosphere, an altitude where there was no oxygen in the air, and suddenly the rat fell to the bottom of the cockpit floor. He raised his plane to a new altitude, and that made all the difference for him, dear friend. For far too long, here's the application, for far too long the biblical concept of Christian giving has been gnawed away at by the twin rats of a joyless legalism and a selfish liberalism. A sense of guilt... And manipulation has motivated the legalism. A sense of self-serving affluence has motivated the liberalism. It's time for us to raise Christian giving to a new altitude, to a new atmosphere, where God's grace works in our hearts and lives, even as it did the day you got saved. Because that's how you were saved, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. You were saved by God's grace. Were you happy that day? Amen. I think we need a few more amens to that. Were you happy that day? Amen. Amen. We were happy that day. We had joy in our hearts because God's grace had worked in our lives. And we need God's grace to work in our lives. Again, it's time to elevate the concept of Christian giving to a higher altitude. When we do that, our whole attitude toward giving will change. And God will get the glory. The higher atmosphere of giving is called grace. To the Apostle Paul, giving was a grace. When he speaks of giving, he calls it a grace. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, these words, For we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. This morning, we look at the second message in our faith-raising campaign called Generations Following. It's a five-Sunday campaign throughout the month of March. It's based on the scripture from Psalm 48, verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion or Jerusalem. 
Go round about her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our God forever. What kind of God will the next generation believe that we believed in? What kind of God will the next generation think that we served? Is he a great God who can do anything? Or is he a pauper God, unable to do much of anything at all? The obvious goal of this faith-raising campaign is to build a new student young adult building. You've got a picture of it on the screen in front of you. We've talked about the need to provide adequate space and relevant facilities for the fastest-growing ministry of our church, which is student young adults. You can see that we'll be accomplishing that from this architect's drawing of this new student young adult building as well. But as I said last week, if you have the right attitude and respond appropriately to what God is doing in your life, then this campaign will touch every area of your spiritual life. If all we do in the next three years is build a new student young adult building, then we have failed. What God wants to do is build people, not buildings. Amen? God wants to build people. And this campaign is about doing some building in our lives so that spiritually we become more of what God wants us to be. So our theme for this morning is simple. If we follow the example of Jesus, giving for us can be raised to a grace work. If we follow the example of Jesus, giving for us can be raised to a grace work. Or, as I was so inspired yesterday when I began to think about that pilot's illustration, when we raise giving to the higher altitude of God's grace, then we get the right attitude about it. We raise giving to the higher altitude of God's grace, then we get the right attitude about it. So let's begin with number one. There are churches for whom giving has become a grace work. There are churches for whom giving has become a grace work. It had become a grace work for the churches of Macedonia. So let's look at some characteristics of grace giving. What is that like? How does it work? Well, first of all, gracious giving often rises out of the midst of the poorest circumstances. Now, that surprises us. We would think that gracious giving most often comes from the most affluent background. Comes from the most affluent circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, But now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Churches of Macedonia were Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, biblical names that you've heard of. Paul wrote two letters to the church at Thessalonica that we still have. Paul wrote one letter to the church at Philippi that we still have. They had at one time been very wealthy cities. The area was well known for its gold and silver mines, but conquest by the Romans had left the Macedonians cringing under the empire's whip. Rome's policy toward captured people was to keep them at bay. And the way they would do that was that they would either exorbitantly raise taxes on the people, or they would cut off the supply of food coming into a province And sometimes they would do both if they really wanted to get people under the whip. That's evidently what was happening when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Yet in spite of that, they had given the most generous offering to relieve the Christians in Palestine who were suffering from several successive years of persecution and famine. 
Paul had proposed this relief offering in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It was to submit together Eastern Christianity, which was most, mostly Jewish Christians, with Western Christianity, which was primarily Gentile Christians. By the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, it had been a year later. And the Corinthians had not yet accomplished their offering. So Paul wants them to give, he wants to give them an example of gracious giving, and he does so using the churches of Macedonia as a challenge to motivate the Corinthian church. So the first characteristic of grace giving is that it is often arising out of the midst of the poorest circumstances. God has a way of speaking to our hearts so that we're willing to give far beyond what we should, maybe. Certainly far beyond what we think we could because we love Him and want to do the right thing. Then secondly, gracious givers are giving or see giving as a privilege to be celebrated. Gracious givers see giving as a privilege to be celebrated. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verses 3 through 4 says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Generous giving gets people's attention. Story told about a Texan who walked into a church one day and was speaking to the church secretary and said, Little lady, please tell me where I can see the head hog at the trough. Secretary said, Well, sir, I'm sorry we don't talk to our pastor or about our pastor in such terms as that. He said, Well, I'm sorry, little lady, I didn't mean to offend you. I just need to speak to the head hog at the trough. The secretary said to him, Now, sir, I've told you once already, we don't talk about our pastor in those kinds of terms. I may have to ask you to leave the building. And the Texan said, well, well, ma'am, I'd hate to leave the building without giving you the $100,000 in cash I brought with me. And she said, $100,000? Why didn't you say so? I think I hear the big pig coming down the hall right now. <laughs> Truth is, of course, that generous giving gets our attention, but it also gets our respect. A number of years ago, a man received an automobile from his brother as a Christmas present. On Christmas Eve, when the man came out of his office, a street boy was walking around the new car, admiring it, and he said, Is this your car, mister? And the man said he was. He said, Yes, my brother gave it to me for a Christmas present. The boy was astounded. said, You mean your brother actually gave it to you and it didn't cost you anything? Boy, I wish... And he stopped in mid-sentence. Of course, the man knew what he was going to say. He knew the boy was going to say, I sure wish I had a brother like that. But that's not what he was going to say. Instead, the boy said, I was going to say, I wish I could be a brother like that. For you see, he had a younger brother who was crippled and couldn't get around. And he desired so much that one day he could buy his younger brother a car so that he could get around a car like this man had. Second characteristic of gracious giving is that giving is a privilege to be celebrated. Then thirdly, the third characteristic of gracious giving, gracious givers prioritize giving themselves first to the Lord and then their substance. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 5 says, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. What Paul is saying is that there's a priority in giving. And the priority is this, when God has you, then God has yours. When God has you, then God has you. Or somebody say amen. amen. Now there's a, there's a negative side of that, okay? And, and it's probably necessary for me to say it. There's a negative side of that. And that's this. When God doesn't have yours, then He probably doesn't have you. When God doesn't have yours, He probably doesn't have you. But when God has yours, God God has you, rather, He has yours. The fact is that when God has you, it's easy to give Him yours. Remember last Sunday that I shared with you six simple statements about stewardship? 
The first statement was the simplest of all. It was only four words. God owns it all. And we said that God owns it all by virtue of His being our Creator. He created it all. But that's not all. It's also true that God owns it all because God is your Redeemer. God is your Redeemer. The word redemption in the Bible refers to buying a slave back out of slavery. We were slaves to sin and Satan, but Jesus Christ paid the cost by going to the cross and dying there for us, shedding His precious blood for us. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20 through 20 can say, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So those are the characteristics of grace-giving. And secondly, the grace of giving must go beyond good intentions to generous actions. The grace of giving must go beyond good intentions to generous actions. The church at Corinth had promised Paul a generous offering, a relief offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. From verses 10 through 11, we can see that that promise had been made a year before, but nothing had been given yet. Their intentions were good, but they never got around to giving that offering. I know it's a little late for a Valentine's Day illustration, but I found a great video on good intentions this past week. It's the story of a couple of guys on Valentine's Day. One wants to propose marriage to his girlfriend. The other is not ready for that. The other doesn't want to propose marriage to his girlfriend. He just wants to give her some concert tickets. Watch what happens in this Valentine's Good Intentions video. I think I'm going to do it this time, man. Man, you better. You've been holding that thing forever. So when are you going to pop the question to April? (laughs) No, man. I'm not ready. Being engaged makes me nervous. Bro, listen. Jessica says she's expecting a surprise. Boom. Concert tickets. Hey! Concert tickets. Oh my gosh! Tomorrow night at the Superdome. Oh, thank you. Let's go see where the seats are. Dude, you distracted me. I'm sorry, man. I'm gonna go do it right now. dress picked out. All right, so much for good intentions, right? So much for good intentions. Well, it's going to take more than just good intentions for us to build this new student young adult building. It's going to take generous actions. So I hope that you're praying about what actions you need to take in the next several weeks as we think about the commitments that we're making together to build this new student young adult building for the generations following. Then thirdly, Jesus is our great example when it comes to gracious giving. Jesus is our great example when it comes to gracious giving. The key verse of this entire section is verse 9. I mean, if you had to have a key, it just just jumps off the page at you. It's the key verse that says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Jesus had it all, but He gave it all so that we might be saved. 
Miles Lewis, my youth pastor at a church in Osprey, Florida, used to tell us that when we meet Jesus Christ, He gives you new desires, new delights, and new dimensions. When you meet Jesus Christ, He gives you new delights, new desires, and new dimensions. You see, when the grace of God touches your heart, then there's a new affection and a new love that comes into your life. The young man who used to save every dime to fix up his prized automobile suddenly falls in love with a beautiful young lady. All at once, spark plugs and alternators don't seem to mean as much to him anymore. Suddenly, dinners at nice restaurants, movie tickets, and store-bought flowers are embraced by him, and he doesn't resent the sacrifice. In fact, it's easy for that young man. Why? Because of the expulsive power of a new affection. When there's a new love in our lives... That love calls forth from deep within us spontaneous desires to give and then to give again and again. Or let me give you another example, if I might. It is almost springtime. It is the time that young men's hearts turn to turkey hunting. (laughs) Turkey hunting. Guys who are normally fairly tight with their money suddenly will spend wads and wads of money on new box calls, pan calls, and mouth calls, shotguns, decoys, and turkey vests. They practice their yelps and clucks and putts and purrs and gobbles and owl hoots. <laughs> Somebody answer back, if you will, please. I mean, that's, you know... It's embarrassing to be up here and do that and nobody answers back. There you go. All right. Very good. Thank you. That's exactly what I want to hear in the woods. They scout early. Like two weeks they get up before dawn every morning and they get out in the woods before dawn and they're they're listening for gobblers to see where they are so they can pin that one down for opening morning. They do all this because a new affection, a new love, turkey hunting, has entered their lives In the same way, the expulsive power of our love for Christ moves us to sacrificial giving. Our giving is not like pumping water out of a dry hole that must be primed to surrender a few cups of muddy sludge. When we love Jesus Christ, giving comes out of us like an artesian well. Because we love the Lord. Then fourthly, God expects us to give graciously from what we have, not from what we don't have. God expects us to give graciously from what we have, not from what we don't have. By the way, if you look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through, I think it's like verse 9, you're going to see that the word grace occurs four different times. Let me, let me give you a little cue about Bible studying, a little hint. When you see a word recurring over and over again in a few verses of the text, guess what is the theme of that text? That word is the theme of that text. That concept is the theme of that text when you see it occurring over and over again. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Or verses 6 through 8, if you will. I'm, I'm sorry, it should have been 8 through 10. 8 through 10. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were also, uh, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Then look at verses 11 and 12. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Here's the difficulty when it comes to giving. 
Every once in a while, there's somebody who's very motivated by what the crowd's going to think and will make some kind of commitment that's absolutely outrageous in terms of how high it is. And their, their motivation is because they want everybody to, to think the best of them. But they can't possibly meet that commitment, and it's going to be disappointing to everybody. But for every one person that does that, there are 25 more people over here who never challenge themselves enough. They decide early on what they can afford to give without any sacrifice at all, and that's what they're going to give. Let me tell you something. This building will not be built without sacrifice. This building has to involve sacrifice from us if we're going to see God work in a wonderful way. The Corinthians obviously had some concern about the size of their offering going to Jerusalem, which is why they procrastinated, why they put off sending it there. Paul wants them to know that you can't give what you don't have. Please hear me say that. You can't give what you don't have. But you can ask God to help you by showing you things that you may already have that you can use as gifts or by doing something miraculous in your life and providing some income you didn't think you would get. You see, sacrifice is measured not by how much we give to others but by how much we keep for ourselves. Like that poor widow in the gospel narratives who had two leaf-thin coins. The word in Greek is lepta for the coins. It's the word from which we get the English word leaf. Two leaf-thin coins. People misjudged her giving, her generosity. They thought it was nothing. She was throwing these small coins into the, the, the receptacles and they made no noise at all. And There was nobody in that crowd that was impressed. Nobody except Jesus because he knew the true value of her gift. He knew that the rich people were throwing in their surplus. But this woman was throwing in everything she had. And so Jesus said she gave more than all the rest. Even though it was only two leaf-thin coins. Dear friend, when you give the way God tells you to give, then you're giving sacrificially. Then lastly... Gracious giving results in God's people meeting each other's needs. Gracious giving results in God's people meeting each other's needs. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there, that there might be an equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, one day, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be an equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. That last verse, verse 15, is a quotation from the Old Testament book of Exodus. It is talking about the manna that God provided for His people in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16 tells us that, quote, In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor, end quote. The Israelites saw it, didn't know what it was. They called it manna. Manna is Hebrew for, what is it? It's literally Hebrew for what is it? We don't know what it is. They say it tasted like wafers made with honey, kind of like a little Debbie, if you will. <laughs> Just to get your appetite going for the gym in a few minutes. Scripture said that each person should collect an omer every day. An omer was about three pounds of the stuff. And we're told in Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, that the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. And you recall that the manna, what's more, if kept for more than a single day, would become rotten, foul, and putrefying. And there's an analogy for us right there. Doesn't money that should have been distributed to relieve the needs of others become corrupting in its nature to those who hoard it? It's not sweet anymore. It's foul. 
You see, wealth like manna should be used the way God designed money to be used, to spread the gospel around the world, to help those who have physical needs, and to bless the lives of those around us. Our friend John Wesley was right when he said that the only good of money is the good that you can do with it. In the long run, on the day that you and I die, we will believe that. I promise you. On the day that you and I die, we will believe what John Wesley said. We may not believe it today, but we'll believe that on the day that we die. The only good of money is the good that you can do with it. In 1731, a young John Wesley determined to maintain his standard of living at the same level year after year, regardless of what happened to his salary. At that time, his earnings were 30 pounds per year. It took him 28 pounds to live on. He gave two pounds away. But as the years went on and he made more and more, things stayed the same. When he made 60 pounds per year, he gave 32 pounds away because he could still live on 28. When he made 120 pounds a year, he gave 92 pounds away because he could still live on 28 pounds per year. Now, I know that our world today is more complex than Wesley's world. He was a traveling evangelist. He had no family to speak of. I know that we have family responsibilities and other financial responsibilities and that we have to have some savings for emergencies and certainly for retirement. And yet Wesley's basic life principle continues to challenge us today when he said what should rise is not the Christian standard of living but his standard of giving. What should rise is not the Christian standard of living, but is standard of giving. What we need to strive for is grace giving, a financial generosity that rises from our hearts to those who've experienced God's grace through Christ our Lord. And if we allow God's grace to work in our hearts, then our generosity will not only keep up with our rising standard of living, it will also look for ways to go beyond that because our hearts are filled with the gracious goodness of God. Have you experienced the grace of God through the salvation of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this campaign. It's timely, Lord. We need it right now. Father, it's also your desire to touch our lives through this. So we pray that we'd get off of our guard. We we wouldn't treat the preacher or the church this month like telemarketers but that we would understand, Lord, that, uh, that you have a work you want to do in our lives. It just happens to involve money. But it involves a whole lot more than that. It involves our faith. It involves our dedication. It involves our character, who and what we're becoming. Help us, Father, to love you in a way that would tell others how much we love you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.